Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. Today, I'm thrilled to have Rosemary Cromwell with us. Rose is a photo and video artist whose work explores the effects of globalization on human interaction and social politics. She's really interested in this tenuous space between the political and the spiritual, and she often works in places that have complex relationships to the United States, where she's from. Her photographs kind of act as vectors for cultural histories, where she blends emotional portraits with everyday observations. Throughout this episode, we traverse three bodies of work, including El Libro Supremo de la Suerte, a portrayal of Cuba created over eight years that continues to defy expectations and interpretations, King of Fish, a 10-year project about a community living alongside the Panama Canal, and Eclipse, a study of the physical, psychological and spiritual changes of motherhood. We talk about everything from visual strategies, the role of place, the role of time, building long-term collaborations, authorship, and the role of photo books in her practice. This was in many ways a sprawling conversation that connects the dots between so many parts of Rose's work, illustrating the ways that a practice builds over time. I feel very lucky that I discovered that I loved photography really early. Um, I think I was in fifth grade when I asked my mom uh, for a point-and-shoot camera for Christmas. Uh, and I, I really liked, I really always liked looking at people's family photos. And I think that's, that was kind of my entry point into photography. And also I liked, you know, taking them. <laughs> um, so she she did get me a point and shoot for Christmas, and she likes to tell a story of of how I I photographed all of the the waste from the our large family's Christmas celebration, all the, all of the trash that was produced. Um, so she she thought that I was interested in in kind of a counter narratives from the very beginning, um, and then I went on. <laughs> yeah, after photographing the trash, I I, I went on to, to photograph. My my siblings. Um, I grew up with in a blended family of, of four um, four siblings, and so my brother and my sister were, were like my first uses, and um, and also just photograph my my neighborhood, my dogs, and um, you know photography also gave me a sense of self confidence that I think I was lacking, uh, especially as I got a little bit older and into high school. Um, I felt like I had trouble communicating myself verbally, whether I was shy. I also grew up with a pretty bad speech impediment. So as soon as I began making images and people could kind of see what I was seeing and how I was seeing, then I really gained a sense of self-confidence that I didn't have before. One of the things I really am interested to talk to you about as well, just thinking about this notion of photography and how it's evolving is during your career the idea or the concept of documentary photography has shifted and and still very much continues to shift and I know that you both work in the kind of 
for lack of a better word, the traditional sense of um, what documentary photography is on some of your assignments, but you also lean into this very new approach of documentary photography that's perhaps operating in kind of a looser framework than we think of the traditional kind of form. And this feels like it comes from both a thoughtful and pragmatic reflection on the limitations of documentary photography and this illusion of objectivity, which I know we've talked about before, and also your interest in the psychological space. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and why this sort of new imagining of documentary is so central to your work. Yes, I mean, it's definitely a big interest of mine. Uh, you know, the well, I guess the different ways that photography, different contexts in which photography is presented and read. And I really do revel in working among a couple of different contexts, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a really a more straightforward journalistic project or it's or it's my own personal work where I can take liberty to push that 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 sense of of what documentary is to put uh, you know performance in to stage things to try to use other storytelling techniques that I think help to tell a complicated and nuanced story better than well not better but in a different in a different way than straight documentary per se and you know I, this has also been like a struggle throughout my whole a struggle of identity too throughout my my photography career. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to be a photographer, but I didn't really know what that meant. I went to Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore and studied art photography. But a lot of my projects even in, in college were out in the world. You know, I, I did a whole uh, a project about photographing malls at night with a four by five camera, kind of looking at how public space had become private space in suburbs of in the suburbs of Baltimore where the mall became a central social social gathering point and I also photographed uh, locals from this dive bar that was really close to to Micah called the Mount Royal Tavern and that was my senior thesis also with a four by five camera so I I knew I wanted to um to be a storyteller and to be out out in the world and meeting people and and, and telling stories that you know the 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 bar regulars were that was a bar that I I worked at sometimes and I definitely was a regular as well, um, and it was almost like a community center in a sense, and so there it was documenting a community that I was part of too, but as soon as I started to think about how I was going to do this in a practical way out in the world you know post college, I realized that like photojournalism, uh, you know claimed objectivity which. Um, I even before I had read, you know, much critical theory of photography just seemed impossible, you know, because there's mm. somebody behind the camera. So I was like, okay, I, I don't think I can do that. And that's just that wasn't like what the only thing I wanted to do. And then, you know, the more I also learned about the colonial history of photography and, and how the camera in the past has has really functioned as a, a weapon of colonialism. And has people who are photographers historically maybe have, there's always like a power dynamic. And so that also informed kind of my want to insert myself and my position into the work to, you know, to try to, sub, you know, subvert this, this, his, this really heavy history, you know. And mm. it's um, even in the past year, I've been, you know, looking at the history of photography, the 
the photographers or the the projects that maybe growing up I really respected and kind of like looking at them again with and with more experience and you're like wow like you know there these stories have been told by like one kind of person uh for a long time and so I think those kinds of motivations have led me to want to take um a different approach in my personal work what I've always loved about your projects is the way you craft them within the confines of a specific geography, but it's never about being a straight documentation of a place. It's more about harnessing the environment as a stage for bigger ideas. And I wondered if that resonated for you at all. Definitely. You know, there's a power and an aura to place. And I really want to investigate all the layers of that through my work, telling stories of place, um, and um, but doing it in creative ways that that go deeper and don't just stop at a stereotype of a place, which I find, you know, I think that can happen so easily when we image a place that we kind of just regurgitate the same images of, of, of a certain place. And, you know, I've worked in, in Havana where that is really prevalent, even Miami where I live now. But I and when I'm wondering if maybe this interest in place, you know, comes from a love to know other places or, um, you know, that is, in a sense, what documentary, documentary photography has has done in the past is to go to places and, and to show them through photographs. So my practice maybe does come from this traditional sense of, of wanting to document a sense of place, but I aim for it to go you know, to make ties between specific locations to bigger global issues. And, um, you know, going back to to what we were speaking about, you know, about the alternative documentary approaches, I think that because place and geography are so informed by so many layers of history and, you know, experiences and uh, natural like, occurrences of the environment, that how we talk about place can be more complicated and can have multiple narratives in, in one project. And then also a sense of place is really personal and always changing. And so it's, you know, it's really a struggle to kind of present a sense of place in photographs. I mean, it's impossible. You have to really come from this subjective point. And so, you know, whether it, you know, for my, my work in, in Cuba was really kind of this personal way of seeing the world that, that, I, that I learned in, in Havana or in working in, in Panama, um, thinking about the, the, mili- the United States military history in Panama, which is the legacy of, of my country. I try to take a, a personal, I find that taking a personal approach creates something a little bit more honest. And also, you know, experiencing land or place can be a very personal experience or a very spiritual experience, and it can also be a, a very political one. So I find that it is a really great stage to talk about the smaller things in life and then in bigger world issues. Yeah, I've always loved the way that you can kind of build tension between those bigger and smaller issues within the work. I think it's so powerful. And time is really important to kind of what you described as well. And and a big part of your practice is taking the time and really allowing bodies of work to mature over long periods and, and you being in a place for an extended time so you can build networks and long term relationships with the people and the places that you are exploring through your practice. And I know when we've spoken before, I'm 
just always kind of in awe of these very close emotional ties that you build and they feel so vital to your process as an image maker. Can you talk a little bit about time and how you think about that in terms of the construction of the work? Yeah, I've only recently really realized that time is a, a medium for me in a sense, um, because as time passes and, you know, these projects take a long time, I realize, OK, this is like a very beneficial thing for my work. You know, in the beginning, I was kind of anxious about it and, um, you know, just kind of like the pressure to finish, finish something and put, you know, publish things and put them out into the world. And I'm glad that I took uh, with my first book, El Libro Supremo de la Suerte, which is a body of work that I made in Havana over like a period of, I think, eight years. You know, I, I did try to make it into a book a couple of years before I published published the book and it just, but the work wasn't ready. I didn't feel like it was um, ready to go. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I was, I didn't put the pressure on myself just to put something out into the world um, because it, the work matured with time. And because I you know I've been working in places where I'm I'm not from, and especially you know places that have complicated relationships with, with the United States, that I think it's been really beneficial to the work to to take a long time to to live in the in in these you know in Havana and Panama and um, to be able to tell more nuanced stories. And you know also the people who I've worked with, Milagros, who's the one of the was really a, a good friend of mine in Havana who I met on the street by chance in 2005. And, and there's a narrative in, in my book about a Cuban Chinese number system um, and she, that uh, she used to play the underground clandestine uh, lottery. And I was really interested in, in how she was looking at everyday instances like, um, you know, if a butterfly would fly into her kitchen, maybe she'd play number two because number two uh, was butterfly in this uh, number system called La Tirada or the charade. And that was really uh, like this way of looking at the everyday and making things more monumental was, was all kind of was very aligned with how I was making images in Havana, where I was trying to to make images that were very honest to my day-to-day experience there and things that struck me so it was, I was also looking at the everyday, you know, photographing her turtle on the street or um, a, a stick that I came across or reenacting a, an encounter with friends. So this kind of connection, this very nuanced thing about like seeing the world and making things more monumental through the act of photographing them, realizing that was kind of a, a little bit aligned with how she was navigating, playing the lottery and things that were happening in her life was a connection that took many years to make and became part of the narrative structure of the book. So yeah, I, I guess these things take time to to evolve or the stories that I'm interested in telling take time. And, you know, for instance, yeah, like Milagros, for instance, is a good friend of mine and somebody who I've learned a lot from in life, you know, taught me how, taught me how to cook. And so people who I've worked with photographically are also people who are my I really hope are going to be my lifelong friends. Um, and same with uh, Pastor Michael Brown in Panama, uh, who I have worked with in a number of years. Not only I have I photographed him and his family and his community, but we also ran a nonprofit together. And um, I met him. He's a pastor. And I met him at a point in my life where I was, you know, questioning my own spirituality. And, you know, I, I'm, I didn't join his church, but I feel like I met him at that point for, for a reason. 
I feel like my life and my work really blend together. And especially you know, now I've been photographing my myself and my child and my husband. Um, but there's, there's not like a huge separation from, oh, that's work and oh, that's my life. You know, like my family knows you know, has been to, has been to Cuba and Panama and, you know, my mom knows, knows all the people I photographed in Cuba and has helped me photograph in Cuba and, you know, same with Panama. So I feel like it's, yeah, it's just, it's it, these stories that I am telling through photography really um, have become part of my life. And I'm so grateful for that, that I have such a diverse community now. So it's really been, I've really benefited so much through doing this this work. And I'm also not somebody who I'm not like looking for the next community to embed myself in. <laughs> it's definitely mm-hmm. not. Uh, I don't know if like, I'm always going to be working this way, but these, you know, these experiences, I feel privileged to have had them. You know, I ended up in, in Cuba because I, um, I was on a study abroad trip uh, through NYU, even though I was at MICA, but I applied because I really wanted to go to Cuba due to my, you know, the background in Seattle of like learning about different political systems. And I was like, well, maybe there's, you know, maybe if capitalism is failing us in some ways, perhaps, you know, socialism is a, is a different route. And, you know, being a young, like a naive kind of person, you know, I, I soon realized that all political systems have failings and I'm not, you know, saying that socialism in Cuba is successful, but there are some, you know, obviously some benefits and some downsides, um, but it made me want to go and, you know, learn about other political systems. And so that's why I applied to go on this study abroad trip. And that's when I met Milagro and um, our relationship continued over the years. And I ended up actually even working as a, a tour guide in Cuba when, when Cuba and the United States had a better relationship uh, during the Obama years. And I was this was when I was just starting my freelance photography career, but I needed a way to get to Cuba to, to make my own personal work. And, you know, I found that I could get paid to, to be a cultural guide there and, you know, work alongside a Cuban guide. Um, and so that was a unique experience as well. But, um, and, you know, in, in Panama, I've lived on and off for the past 10 years or more. I went there first as a Fulbright scholar in 2007 and um, have, you know, uh, worked as a darkroom printer for a photographer, Sandra Letta, there and um, ran a nonprofit with, the past, with Pastor Mikey. So I think that I've also learned that it's sometimes good to put down the camera and to be in places as a person, you know, as a friend, um, to do other things besides photography. And that I think has been also very important to, to these long-term relationships with people and also with places. Mm. It really shows in the work how deep these relationships are, I think. And I always come back to the performativity in your work because that feels like a really generative part of your practice and, and a way of you enabling your collaborators and your friends who you're working with to, to have some control of their image and to be active in the work that you're creating. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how performance, how you think about performance and how it operates for you when you're making work. Yeah, performance has become an important part of my work. Uh, and I think it started... When, um, well, the nonprofit that I keep mentioning with with um, 
with Mikey uh, is called Cambio Creativo, Creative Change. And it was a nonprofit, or is, that works uh, the, the artistic workshops with kids from his community, Coco Solo. And I was together with another photographer, Lerna and Dara, a Panamanian photographer. We um, were inviting friends to come and do artistic workshops with the kids in Coco Solo. The first workshops we did with the kids were uh, photography workshops. And um, I think we were, I was really encouraging the kids to be creative in the photographs and to be gestural and suggestive. And I believe even just like watching their imagination go inspired, inspired my work to be a little bit more performative. And that was also kind of the work I was, I was into at the time or looking at was work with a little, with a little bit performance and, and looking at performance for authentic moments that were just as true as if I, you know, caught something in action. So a lot of my work became reenacting things um, or even in, in my project King of Fish, where I photographed one of Mikey's adopted sons, Pocho, it, you know, he was uh, around 12 years old or when I started photographing him. So it was just a, a playful thing that, that, you know, that began, you know, climbing trees or playing with fish. And then, um, and then also that kind of influenced uh, simultaneously, I was still working, you know, I was working in Cuba and that influenced that work. Um, to just be a little bit more playful. And I definitely think that, you know, while performance is a little bit more collaborative than maybe just the not engaging somebody, I mean, I'm not, I still know that I am the, the end of the photographer. I'm the one that like edits the work. So it's not tipping the power dynamic. It's tipping it a, 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 not, a little bit more, but not a hundred percent, you know, but I do think that there is a certain level of engagement that's required in in performance. And that I really do enjoy. I'm also really interested too in, in how different kinds of photographs can fit together and, and be read seamlessly in a sense, you know, where things maybe, you know, in the, in the libro, there's, uh, you know, images I just came across and then images that I had, you know, written in notebooks or thought about making for a year in advance, you know, before I went back and, and then made them. And I'm interested in how these images can kind of all coexist seamlessly and have the same, um, the same, the same aura about them, the same kind of authenticity to them. You're listening to the Messy Truth: Conversations on Photography. You talked a little bit then about how King of Fish began in terms of you photographing Mikey's son. I wondered if you talk about how that project evolved because that's kind of an important project that you're working on right now and turning into a book. Yes. Um, well, bear with me because it's kind of a long story. <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I went to Panama. I applied to Panama for my Fulbright grant to to investigate how the Panama Canal um, affects local communities in Panama, and I was interested in this um, as trying to learn about how globalization affects us in our personal lives, our day to day lives. Um, has always been an interest of mine since um, I was young. And so uh, the Panama Canal as a world trade route is what drew me to Panama. And um, when I when I went to Panama, I ended up kind of doing a, a different, uh, veering a little bit off for my Fulbright project. But then at the end of that year, 
um, I had been photographing in spiritual revival churches, um, which are Afro-Antillian churches. And I met this bishop who struck me uh, because of her really commanding way she was preaching. And I asked her if I could, could interview her for my project. And she was like, oh, I want to take you someplace. Uh, and you can interview me on the way. And um, I said, okay. <laughs> and she was like, it's in Cologne. And Cologne is um, the city on the opposite end of the Panama Canal from Panama City on the Caribbean side. And I had never been. And we met at the bus terminal in Panama maybe the next day. And we took a bus. And she took me to Coco Solo, where her friend Mikey was um, was living. And Coco Solo uh, was just about 15 minutes outside of, of Cologne City. And it is a, it was a community of about 500 families living in an old U.S. Canal Zone barracks. So for after the United States military built the Panama Canal, then the United States operated the canal for 100 years. And also we, the military were in charge of the canal, the canal zone, which was 10 miles on either side of the canal. So it was basically like a, a large military base in the middle of Panama where even like where Panamanians had to show their ID to cross and there wasn't a freedom of movement. It was almost like an, in my mind, an occupa- occupation um, mm-hmm. of land uh, for a hundred years until um, Jimmy Carter agreed uh, with Omar Torrijos and the, uh, late in the 70s i might be my dates in history are maybe off but they agreed to give that in the year 2000 they would give the um, canal back to panama so one of the first military bases base to be handed over from uh, the u.s military to the panamanian government was a base called coco solo and coco solo was a really beautiful base where there was you know hospitals movie theaters barracks and beautiful trees. And when the base was handed over to the Panamanian government, I I don't think there was a very concrete land use plan in action because it was just, was so early. And they ended up at the time, Cologne city was deteriorating and and there had been a number of fires. And so they moved in a population of people from Cologne to Coco Solo and used it as pseudo public housing. And this was in the, in the eighties. And, but they never, over the decades, they never kept up the infrastructure of these barracks. And also soon many uh, port terminals, international shipping companies began to pop up and be built on, on all sides of Coco Solo including a um, with the biggest uh, free trade zone in the Americas as well. And so as Coco Solo was deteriorating, the infrastructure of Coco Solo, um, the world trade around it was, was growing mightier. And so when I first came to Coco Solo, I was just struck by this uh, visual contrast. You know, Coco Solo is a community without running water, um, without a sewage system without any kind of social services. Um, even police were afraid to go in there because it was um, there was gang violence at the time, and it um, you know with this with with just even without water, you know, looking right by the mouth of the Panama Canal, 
it's you just start you can't help but think about the world that we live in and how globalization really serves some people but doesn't serve others and even the port terminals were cutting off coco solar residents access to the natural environment to be able to fish or or to hunt iguanas or um and even the road to get into cologne was very dangerous with these big container trucks always you know rushing by so you know as a you know as a young person i was very you know struck by this contrast and and uh pastor mikey was um doing his own community efforts. He was born in Jamaica, but grew up in Coco Solo and um, had, was running a soup kitchen and um, had adopted six, six boys whose parents couldn't care for them. And I was just, you know, um, kind of struck by the work he was doing. And I wanted to, to help in whatever way I could. So I suggested that perhaps we start, oh no, actually first the, he asked me if I would teach English classes to the kids, to the youth in Coco Solo. And that's how I started. And then eventually I, I thought of, well, you know, we don't have any money, but, you know, skill sharing is free and um, education is free. So perhaps I can convince some of my artist friends to come to Coco Solo and, and do some artist workshops. And um, that's really how Cambio Creativo was born. Um, and at first we, you know, we just did it with very little budget. You know, we got cameras donated or paint donated. And over the years, we were able to secure grants from places like the U.S. Embassy and um, other grant giving organizations and began running this after school program um, in this old barrack. I never thought I would be running a, a small school in, in this environment, but um, Cambio Creativo really changed, you know, changed my life. And we had so many people involved, people, you know, international volunteers, and we really wanted to not be running a, a typical, you know, quote, charity. It really was supposed to be an empowerment program and something that, you know, through the ability to express themselves, that Coco Solo youth would feel more empowered. And we did, you know, we did see over the years that crime or violence went down in, in the community. And, I don't know if we have a way to prove it to our programs, but it definitely did gave uh, gave the youth a space, a safe space to come and be creative and help get help with their homework. So, and during this time, I was also you know photographing as well, you know photographing Mikey's family and then just the the environment and the landscape of Coco Solo. It's such an amazing project. It conjures so many things for me because, firstly, I think there's a lot of dialogue right now about, you know, what more can photography do? How can photography have a more meaningful presence in our life beyond, you know, what it currently does? And I feel like this project is such a great example of photography being a catalyst for something, you know, that can reach so many people and have such a profound impact. What's so striking about this project in particular is the ways in which you uh, as an artist really follow your gut you really follow your instincts and you really in many ways I guess surrender to forces outside of yourself as well as well as being deeply in tune with yourself and I wondered how you've cultivated the confidence to do this the intuition thing or the being the being patient part I don't know it's been it hasn't always been easy I have to say you know um, I think that Sometimes when you're trying to, when you're going your own path or you don't necessarily fit into a box, it can be a harder route, you know, um, to 
for your career to build. And I've just been tried to be patient and really thankful for these opportunities that have taken me from place A to place B. You know, working with Cambio has really get, gave me this gave me the skills that if I wanted to have a career in, in nonprofit administration, like I have that experience now from this project. So I think it's really trying to be, I'm just appreciative of the, of the process. And um, I know that now things have changed too, you know, since I started, since I've started working as an artist or a photographer that now, you know, Instagram, it, or, you know, making things, things need to be like done faster <laughs> and always mm. have to be, you know, be, have a, a presence on social media or, and that just wasn't how it was 10 years ago. When I, or 15 years ago when I began these projects. So maybe that, that played, a, played a role too. Yeah. You talked a little bit in terms of the project about the political and the spiritual and, and your work really operates in this sort of tenuous space between them, which is really fascinating. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why that's so generative for you, kind of having one foot in each kind of world. I really revel in finding the connections between the spiritual and the political because I mean at first I, I really believe that everything is political you know your gender your race your uh your nationality obviously but um you know even your spirituality can can be politicized and you know or outlawed in some cases mm. of in the case of Santeria in Cuba for example and I love to find the connections between how our inner worlds are connected to our outer worlds and how does our inner world dictate how we navigate the outer world or vice versa. I also think that this relates to the power and like the micro or the personal to tell a more macro story. I mean, I, I guess in it, like my work in Cuba is maybe the more nuanced version of, of this kind of, uh, you know, spiritual and political manifesting where, um, you know, Cuba can be very politicized just even by saying that word for a lot of people, uh, especially in, in South Florida where I live now. But, you know, the numbers I believe that my friend Milagro was using is a certain kind of way of navigating the world in this, in this spiritual way. You know, um, it, gave, it, gives, it gave her kind of this day-to-day meditation. But, you know, the lottery is illegal, <laughs> So, um, or, you know, the, the number system she used was tied to history in the sense that it was a Cuban Chinese number system. And there was a lot of Chinese migration to build the, the, the railroad in Cuba. So everything is kind of connected to history, to politics, you know, even though I you know, was trying to make this transcendental, these transcendental images about my time in Cuba, it's also like, you can't avoid that, like, just even you know, the act of me being a, um, a foreigner uh, who can come and go to Cuba when a lot of my friends at the time weren't really, weren't, couldn't really leave Cuba. That is very politicized and there's a certain, you know, power dynamic there. So it's even in maybe a more poetic work, it's, you can't avoid it. And obviously in King of Fish, I really saw how Mikey's spirituality was really guiding him and leading him through a hard, you know, through just life in Coco Solo, which at times was really beautiful, but a lot of times was really hard. Um, so I almost saw it as this like spirituality versus globalization. I mean, that's a very sweeping statement, but that was kind of how I saw that dynamic of the political, the spiritual at play in Coco Solo. 
And so that was, I think, even more glaring than the work in Cuba. And then, you know, I'm really interested in the, the work I'm making in Miami right now is kind of how our person, I'm looking and visually looking at how, um, you know, how our lives are guided in these small moments by living in a, a city that really is, more sometimes I feel looks more at global commerce than it does at the local, you know. And then also, uh, I recently published a book about becoming a mother and motherhood and pregnancy. While you know you think it should be personal, is is as as you know is is um, can be very political too. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about Eclipse, which is the book that you just mentioned, which is kind of all about the physical, psychological and spiritual changes of motherhood following the birth of your daughter. Can you talk about what motivated the work and how photography supported you through that period of early motherhood? Yeah, my my daughter Simone was born in uh, late December 2019. And I, it was the first time, I mean, I, I worked throughout my whole pregnancy, didn't slow down at all. And uh, post post birth, it was you know, you really have to slow down and be present. And um, so my whole identity as, as a photographer and artist really had to, had to take a back. Well, I thought I had to take a back seat or I was struggling with, with my new identity in a sense um, as, you know, as, you know, bec- being a freelance photographer and artist, it takes a lot of, um, a lot of effort and time and, and really has to kind of be your main focus for so many years. And so suddenly there was this, this shift. And I think I just was making images of the postpartum time to, to process, you know, all these new things I was doing, uh, like breastfeeding or pumping. Um, and then also to feel productive. <laughs> you know, it was like kind of this workaholic tendency. And um, so it was, I really enjoyed it. I really do think it helped me process that time. Uh, which can be pretty isolating. And then, you know, obviously when come March, 2020, everything became a little bit more isolating with the pandemic. And, you know, suddenly there is this whole, a whole new experience or, you know, you're bringing a life into the world, but death is suddenly in every conversation. When the pandemic struck and so many people were dying and you think about this, that, you know, that really quick moment between life and death, and after I, you know, I did, I did give birth at the birthing center, but I hemorrhaged after the birth and the midwife really saved my life. And I was transferred to a hospital, but safely afterwards. But this experience of giving birth, but also having somebody save your life <laughs> was also kind of an eclipse in a sense to me. And so I think that all of these experiences went into to this book. And, um, you know, even just including some landscapes from Miami and I wanted to reference just kind of bringing in a life at the time of uh, what, you know, I think of, of like capitalism's near death you know, into a landscape mm-hmm. where we're also seeing climate change is affecting Miami in so many ways. So there's a lot, I guess, that I thought about when I was making this work, you know, from my own personal experience to uh to a a more global experience of the pandemic to just you know bringing a child into this into the the world that we live in now this work had such a profound effect on me as I've told you many times I just having gone through becoming a mother myself recently I I think it's such a hard 
almost impossible experience to kind of manifest in in both in all types of language, whether that's visual language or or spoken language or the written word. It's it's just so multifaceted, as you just really well described in terms of your own experience. Like it's just this intersection of so many different things and emotions, and then also you know to your experience it happening in in the middle of this unprecedented world event. But I think you did such a great job at uh, translating that because the photographs are, they really contain all of these multifaceted emotions that you described for me. That's really what comes through when I spend time with the work, I think is so, is so powerful. And I think one of the things that I found really remarkable about it is the ways in which you turn the camera on yourself, which is not something a lot of photographers do. And I, and I imagine, as I said, like going through becoming a mother myself and how that shifts how you feel about yourself and your own identity. I imagine that wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do at that time. And it was rife with different discoveries. And I guess I'm curious what it was like for you being on the other side of the lens and, and what that kind of taught you going forward in terms of how you collaborate with people. I think the hardest part was the logistics behind that, to be honest. I mean, at first I was making these images and I didn't think, I didn't think they would, I mean, you know, obviously I, I, my goal is to put work out into the world, but I didn't have a plan to make a book. I was, you know, later asked by, uh, by TIS books who published my first book, if I would take part of a, a 10 box book set. And this was, this is one of the books in the book set. So at first I was, I did, I had less of inhibitions of being like, wow, this, this breastfeeding photograph is going to go out into the world. Um, <laughs> but I mean, logistically, I think it was hard in the sense where a lot of it involved, you know, photographing my baby and then I would need to uh, get my husband involved. And so, you know, we're working with like different schedules. And then I was also really lucky that um, a friend of mine, Jesse Schilling, and a really amazing photographer who also has two kids. Uh, we actually met during the pandemic. Uh, she asked me to help her do a, a, or organize a, a print sale in Miami. And um, she was one of the people I was, I was seeing, you know, during the pandemic. And so she also helped me make some images. And so it was really, you know, other mothers were really important to me during this time. And, but even the logistics around, you know, working with her and, and two baby schedules and, you know, COVID not wanting to expose each other. So I think that, yeah, when you're behind the camera and you're looking at everything, it's so much easier. But I do think collaborating with, with her and with Roman, my husband, and with, Another photographer friend, Adrian Rozowski, who's in one of the photographs, who's also a mother, was really um, enriching and felt very, you know, very similar to some of my other projects where I've collaborated with people. But just this time I was kind of directing from behind, from the other side of the camera. But I have to say, I, you know, obviously, like Jesse's a photographer, you know, Roman has a great eye, you know, I wouldn't have been able to make this work without them. And so, I, yeah, it was definitely a very uh, rewarding experience, but logistically difficult <laughs> sometimes. The format of the book is something that you keep coming back to. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why it's so important within your practice. Yeah, I, I love photo books and I've always, photo books were a, a huge entry for me into photography. I, you know, I, at Micah's library, I would spend hours just going through the shelves and looking at work in book form. Maybe because it's so access, so much more accessible. You can't see all that work in exhibitions, or it would take you for so, you know, take you forever. 
to see all that work in exhibition form that perhaps books were just kind of my portal into other people's work and really exposed me to all the photography out there. And so I think that I just always wanted to, to make them as well. And I also just love how, how, how it's an immersive, you know, personal experience and you can kind of choose, you know, how fast you want to flip the pages, um, you know, how you will, how much time you spend on, on one image or different text. And I think it's also fun to kind of try to push the boundaries of, or push the limits of a book, you know, try to, to, to make a nonlinear narrative fit into what is really a linear medium. And for me, a book is, you know, really holds the, the whole project in its entirety. And perhaps an exhibition is maybe an iteration of portion of that project. But I really see the book as like the final object. Yeah, so Eclipse is available to pre-order now, right, from TIS Books. But you're also working on another book about a project you've been doing in Miami. Yes, I'm. Um, I'm. Will be publishing very soon a book with uh, Pomegranate Press, um, and the book is called A More Food Atmosphere, and it's work um, made in made in Miami over the past four or five years. It's it's this body of work is really in, in progress. It's kind of the first time I put something out in progress. Um, but I feel like it's at a really good place. I mean, I think it's something I'm going to continue working on, but I really am happy with, with how the work is looking right now. And a more fluid atmosphere is a, a Joan Didion quote from her book titled Miami. And, you know, I love her approach to, um, to place. It's, you know, very layered <laughs> and looking at different times in history, different experiences. And, you know, Miami is, is, is a very fluid place. It's not only built on limestone, but it, um, there are so many different influences and experiences there. And, you know, but this work is really investigating spaces in Miami that I feel um, mainly in West Miami are, are really um, are spaces that have a lot of you know, warehouses to house goods that have come in through the ports or are more focused maybe uh, on global commerce and perhaps on the local communities. So there may be areas with food deserts or, or more junkyards, but yet there are, you know, are a lot of people living in these spaces. And I'm curious kind of how living in a port and a city really focused on the global influences are, our, our local lives. Um, so it's another manifestation of similar interest from past projects. And, um, but I, it's, it's also kind of the first time I've done like street photography in a sense, even though a lot of the images, some of the images are performed or they're people I've met through Craigslist. Um, I'm also photographing on the street and, um, it's been, it's been fun and a great way to get to know, um, Miami. Oh, I can't wait to see it. It's so exciting. I wanted to finish up by asking you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the experience of making the work or the final image? Yes. Uh, well, for me, it's it's really an easy answer because it's definitely the experience, which is, I think, a little bit selfish, <laughs> but uh, I do care about my viewer and I do care about you know people, the work getting out into the world. But these experiences of making all of this work over my, you know, over the past 15 years has been really, uh, has really given me such a rich life. 
And um, it's hard to separate the two. I mean, I, I couldn't give up the experience. And I really hope that the final product represent, represents my process as well. And the process becomes part of the product. You know, that being said, there's really nothing better than somebody, you know, watching somebody get so much joy from looking at your book. You know, it's, I, I especially think about, you know, bringing uh, El Libro Supremo de la Suerte back to Cuba and sharing it with people who, who know and love La Chorada. And, you know, people who aren't artists, who, I mean, just that joy is, is really, um, it's really special. But the experience was just, yeah, it's, it's just really given me so many amazing life experiences uh, that I'll never forget and have made me who I am today. So I'm definitely thankful for that. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Rose. It was so great to speak to you. Thank you, Jim, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.